the process that we do is we say, right, well, we determine on this flow chart that we write 3,000 miles away in some comfortable air-conditioned office what impact is. We say this is what this is our activities, this is the inputs, these are the outputs, the outcomes, the things that change, and and this is the impact. You know, these are these are the things that matter. It's children's education and it's improved incomes. And they're never normally bad things, right? But we've decided what things are material. And actually, I think the first principle that I would always encourage people to do is say, it's not for us to determine what social impact is. It's for stakeholders to determine what social impact is. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to maximize their impact because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Borelovitz, founder of Spring Impact. Measuring outcomes is an essential part of scaling impact. Without knowing how effective their programs are, organizations can't make informed decisions, secure funding, or meet the expectations of investors. Yet traditional models of measuring in the social sector often fail to listen to the very people they're trying to serve. Today's guest is trying to change that. Tom Adams is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at 60 Decibels, a tech-enabled impact measurement company. Today, Tom tells us how his experience at Acumen led him to found 60 decibels and how the company is flipping the script on impact measurement. We talk about how traditional ways of measuring can hinder scaling and fail to listen to their beneficiaries. On the show, Tom also shares how a new way of measuring impact can enable quicker and more effective scaling. Tom is originally from the UK. He studied economics and graduated in the early 2000s. Like any any starry-eyed student wanting to engage in social change, I joined a uh, investment bank because they offered me a great graduate package. <laughs> I joined Credit Suisse, but I realised, you know, how this wasn't what I was hoping to do, and had a bit of a early crisis. Left the day they were going to give me my bonus as well, so I never got my first bonus, which just shows just how foolish I was to do that and join the government economic service where I worked as a as an economic advisor and wanted to work my way towards DFID because I was really focused on international development but landed in the Department for Transport which seemed about as far away as I could get but through various things and making contacts I, I eventually got a role in the foreign office in Nigeria and that led to a move to DFID those two organizations now together of course in Nigeria is the country economist and and then moved to Ethiopia to run the private sector and climate change teams there, which was just amazing. It was really dream come true job and was really excited to do it. But also had another panic where I thought I'm a civil servant and I've been a civil servant for almost a decade here. And I didn't really see that happening. I admire civil servants hugely, but there is something about my personality, maybe, you know, like the degree of risk I want to take in the jobs that I do that was not maybe aligned to being in the civil service and so Acumen was an organization I'd admired for a long time, bringing together finance from my early career with, with social justice and applied for a job called the head of impact there. Told them I knew how to measure impact like the back of my hand. I was definitely a fake it 
to make it moment and spent a year thinking, geez, I've told them I know all about this and probably didn't know as much as I should have done to take that job. But then started working on different things, you know, different ideas around how to measure impact and started to really go from first principles. So maybe not having all that background helped me and um, come across an approach we called Lean Data at the time to help companies that we'd invested in measure their impact better. For those of you who might not be familiar with the Lean Data approach, it refers to a methodology that favours experimentation and customer feedback in short cycles. To learn more about how the startup methodology is adopted by organisations in the social sector, check out my interview with Anne May Chang from last season. You'll find the link in our show notes. Products used to be built in Silicon Valley with a kind of with what's called the waterfall approach, you know, that that you design it all and you make sure it all works and you'd be tracking your work and then you deliver it and check what people thought of it. And in some ways, that's a bit like monitoring and evaluation. You know, follow all the processes, etc. And then you're evaluated at the end about whether or not the customer likes this. Whereas they've changed that to a sort of more adaptive, leaner approach, getting feedback along the way, etc. And that's a more effective way to serve customers. And, and in fact, that was the whole idea behind what we called Lean Data at Acumen is to take some of those ideas and bring them into the, the world of, of social performance measurement. So can I collect data faster? Can I hear the customer sooner? And these days, you know, again, that might have been harder in a lot of social sectors because it was harder to listen to people, but particularly in international development, the mobile phone is in most people's hands and you can now just call someone very easily or text someone very easily to listen to their views. And that's transformed how easy it can be done. So, and then after a while doing that was a business line, essentially within Acumen, the impact investor, it became clearer that this was something reasonably exciting that we might be able to spin off as, a, as an independent company and did that three years ago with my fantastic co-founder, Sasha Dichter. And now we set up 60 decibels, which we've been growing since. Fantastic. You mentioned Acumen along the way. Could you share a little bit more about that? Because I think Acumen was one of the leaders in this space of impact investing. Yeah, Acumen is a, is a terrific organisation, which is a not-for-profit impact investor and was involved in and around the original group of people um, it was kind of spun out Rockefeller which is the foundation that had kind of brought people together to even come up with a phrase impact investors so it's one of the first if not the first formal investor to use the phrase impact investing but it's a bit of an unusual one it's a it's a not-for-profit so it raises philanthropic capital to invest in early stage companies providing critical goods and services to some of the most marginalized customers and, and people in the world and because it's philanthropic it takes longer it, it invests something it calls patient capital so it can take it can invest in a company and leave the capital in in that fund for six seven eight nine ten even more years as that company grows and that's critical for a lot of companies that are really trying to do what hasn't been done before and and serve the most marginalized people with high quality goods and services it's it's not easy to do that and some of the capital structures we have that are demanding returns faster than that are perhaps not appropriate for those companies. But it was a fantastic opportunity. You know, it's run by Jacqueline Novogratz, who's been doing this for a long time and has attracted some great investors along the way and a fantastic portfolio. So it was some really dedicated entrepreneurs. It was a perfect place for someone who was going to try and measure impact to work with really great entrepreneurs who were bought into the idea of measuring and improving their social performance. Acumen, whilst I'd really attracted idea of impact investing, I hadn't actually got a system 
for measuring in place when I arrived. It right. had tended to kind of talk about the number of lives it had reached, the number of people it was serving. And there was a dissatisfaction underlying all of that, that, hey, you know, we, it's not just about numbers of people. It's not just about these vanity metrics of the number of people served. It's actually finding out what is the quality of change from the perspective of the person who's experienced that impact. And, and what do they think about it? You know, what, what are their views? And can we hold ourselves accountable to that person? Taking the lessons from his time at Acumen, Tom launched 60 Decibels in 2019. 60 Decibels uses mobile technology to survey the people that impact enterprises are meant to serve. They then use this data to create performance benchmarks. The whole principle of our work is to allow the person who has experienced a change or not experienced a change to describe that change for themselves, right? And to describe what things have changed and which of the things that have changed are material. Sometimes people call that feedback, but I, I mean, I, I, you know, I actually just think it's just starting with engaging that person to do that. And, and that is so rare in our sector, you know, like one of the things that seems slightly controversial sometimes to like the M&E world that I come from is I'll say, you need to get rid of theories of change. Now, I hate theories of change. Theory of change is a methodology that defines long-term goals and how one will reach them. And everyone says, but we all need a theory of change. And I sort of agree with that. I say it at somewhat tongue-in-cheek because the process that we do is we say, right, well, we determine on this flow chart that we write 3,000 miles away in some comfortable air-conditioned office, what impact is? We say, this is what this is our activities, this is the inputs, these are the outputs, the outcomes, the things that change, and, and this is the impact. You know, these, are, these are the things that matter. It's children's education and it's improved incomes. And they're never normally bad things, right? But we've decided what things are material. And actually, I think the first principle that I would always encourage people to do is say, it's not for us to determine what social impact is. It's for stakeholders to determine what social impact is. And so that's just the very core of the listening approach to this. You know, you need to listen so that people have the opportunity to say, I used products X or Y. I describe these things as changing in my life. And these of those things that have changed, this is these two things are the most important to my well-being. Great. Do that at scale. That's not actually hard to do. And that actually changes how we even approach social value. It's we require someone else to tell us what things have changed. And then after you've heard what things change and which things are important, then it's about tracking those things going forward. I appreciate it's also slightly harder. It's not always that easy for organizations. They don't have a chief head of impact, a social researcher in smaller organizations. And then and clearly my bias is an organization that provides the services. But there's an increasing number of organizations that provide those services for people that are actually doing just like there's numbers of branding agencies and there's loads of accountants out there and lawyers that are providing these services to these organizations. But we actually haven't seen a market for social research kind of develop. It's always been in academia, which has been surprising. And I'm seeing more and more peer organizations, the 60 decibels, springing up, offering more and more cost-effective and high-value services for organizations who want to listen to say, okay, we'll hire someone who can take care of all the nitty-gritty stats stuff and the quality control issues of data, but I can get good quality data on the people who I'm trying to serve without any of the fuss that I need to. And I don't need to wait until I get a huge grant to go and get an academic institution in. Although Not that I've got anything against academic institutions in research, but I don't have to do that. Whereas I think even five, 10 years ago, it did feel like if you were a young social enterprise, you had to somehow win the lottery of MIT coming along to do a randomized controlled trial before you could say anything about whether you're impactful or not. And that's just not the way it should be. No, exactly. Once this data is gathered, 
Are you finding that it's meeting the expectations of investors? Are people then responding and saying, great, this is good enough? Or are they still expecting other levels of impact like the RCTs and things like that? I think investors are pretty happy with it. You know, actually investors in some ways are great for this because they're used to the idea that you would have risk in the information you're getting and making decisions under risk. So our clients who are investors are usually very happy that they've got information that is beyond, you know, the sort of impact maths that we do. This many people have been reached and I've found this evaluation from over here and I've multiplied these two numbers together for some metric. Whereas if we can give them information that says, against our benchmarks across these four indicators, this particular company is in the top quintile for this indicator, in the middle for these two and the bottom for those two. And a narrative over the top says, well, the context of this is it's working in this country and it's this and this is the scale of the company. And we see often early stage companies aren't creating quite the depth of impact because they're still working out the business model, et cetera. Then people can hopefully absorb that alongside all the financial information around quality of the management team and the and the revenues thus far and the margins that this company is getting and and say, okay, well, all things be even equal with all this information, I'm going to make a decision around whether or not to invest or to continue invest or to to manage my investment in this particular way. By focusing on what people have to say about the products or services they receive, 60 decibels is trying to change how impact measurement is traditionally done. One of the real challenges is that the system of measurement that we've inherited has said people should measure themselves like this. They should say, if they're going to do social work, they should say what they're going to do and tell people what they're going to do, like come up with a plan of, Im- of impact, you know, and they're going to say, right, we're going to do these things. And then we're going to measure those things, monitor those things along the way, see if we've done that. And at the end of it, we're going to evaluate whether we were any good. And that doesn't seem an unreasonable first position to come on. Like, did we do the things we said we were going to do? And were we good? And that's the structure of how we report to kind of philanthropists, because they give us some money to back our plan. And then at the end, we say we deliver that plan. And then is it any good? But that's a long way away from what I would describe as a performance approach, which is not judging our plan in isolation and evaluating our plan in isolation at the end, but actually opening ourselves up to, is the person who experienced that impact describing that as good or not? Not ourselves and our own plan. And more than that, how do we compare to all the other opportunities that could have happened, all the other programs that might have benefited that person? So a performance mindset is, how are we doing in the eyes of the person who is or is not impacted compared to all the peer organizations that that could have otherwise served that person. And that's really rare. That's actually missing because the whole system has been built with these piecemeal impact evaluations. And I can comment on why that might be. You know, partly it's just not been built differently. I mean, there is a slightly cynical part of me that thinks that's about power and actually, you know, that people who are sort of the beneficiaries for one of the better word, it's a terrible word, actually, beneficiaries. There's no opposite to a beneficiary. They sort of get what they get and they don't have any power. I have a philanthropist who says, it's my, have I created impact? Did my impact happen? You know, it's my impact. Beneficiaries there just sort of at the end of it being like, oh, maybe, you know, like no one's asking me if it was good for me. It's all about whether it was good for the philanthropist. Now that's slightly cynical. I don't totally believe that. It's not bad people, but I think it's also worth considering that power has influenced the systems. Whereas, Another system, like a um, capitalist system and how companies serve customers, they have power because they can go somewhere else. They can buy something else. They can choose something else. Shareholders have power. They can invest in something else. It's much harder in a system where people have fewer choices to hold 
that person accountable by choosing a different service provider of social service X or Y, etc. 60 decibels developed benchmarks of performance by asking the same questions across multiple projects. The thing that we have learned at 60 decibels that creates so much value for people who are social change agents is benchmarks. Because a lot of this, as I described earlier, this work is done piecemeal, right? I evaluate my own work and I come away with it going, I think that was good. You know, like that was okay. Good. Great. I did what I did. I maybe put it in a nice infographic. I have a nice marketing report. But when you provide a benchmark and you show someone, actually, look, there's a whole bunch of other peer organizations that might on this particular measure be performing better than you. It does something, you know, people are like, like, oh, right, now I've got some clarity of what to do here, like what to change, how I can improve. Like that brings out the, both a combination of the competitive spirit in people. And I think a bit of competition for social change is great, but also this just interest in it. You know, this, this data is now interesting to me before, rather than it being just for my donors, just so I could get on with my day job. I actually get insight here. So benchmarks very powerful. I can totally see. I mean, one of my great frustrations in this space was if you go into the commercial sector there are just fabulous benchmarks about every industry you know and there's lovely stories about airlines benchmarking against formula one companies to see how quickly they can do the the turnaround things right. like that whereas in the social sector you know <laughs> haven't heard stories like that so can you just give an example of the sort of data you're getting maybe around because i presume it's around specific industries or sectors yeah an off-grid energy company is is one that might be providing solar home systems or mini grids or even cleaner cooking stoves in places where traditional energy sources like a like an electrified grid don't get to. We will listen to people to hear what sort of what areas of their life have have changed as a result of a product or service a solar home system on their roof. And some of these are not surprising. Some of these are I don't spend so much on like the quality of my light is better. Or I'm, I'm I'm not spending so much time having to get status quo cooking and lighting fuels that took a lot of my time but some of them are more unexpected you know my perception of personal safety has improved because i can walk around at night holding a solar lantern whereas before there was darkness so we'll listen to people about the, the areas of impact that, that are interesting that are most material to them and then we'll design light touch social research surveys to collect data that's how most social research is done through through surveys and they will be designed to collect data on those social outcomes and we will do it the same over and over and over and over again with many, many companies. One of the nice things that's happened is that the more we've managed to scale, the more people come to us to say, I hear you've got the indicators that matter to the people I'm trying to serve rather than I want to collect metric X because I've determined that that's in my log frame or whatever other tool I'm using. And can you collect that to me? And so we are able to standardize people, get people to collect similar sorts of data, whether it be perceptions of personal safety in the off-grid lighting sector, amongst other metrics, or in agriculture, living wages and farmer resilience. And those things are collected over and over again, the same way by companies. It actually becomes kind of a bit like a data factory of sorts. Like anything, it's about repeatability and scalability in the data collection. And that's what we're focused on. Hey, Mission to Scale listeners, I need a favour. If the show has helped you in any way, can you share this episode with a friend or colleague? Maybe it's someone who likes listening to good podcasts in their downtime or on their way to work. All you have to do is copy the link in this episode and send it over with a, hey, you might want to check out Mission to Scale. 
To keep providing the show, we need to build our audience. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe where you listen to your podcasts. Appreciate you for helping spread the word. And thank you for being part of the Mission to Scale community. Now back to the show. Well, you know, when it comes to scaling impact, which is what I think about a lot, one of my real frustrations is the sort of heavy evaluation approach, which then means as you're expanding to like five new locations, you know, five new places or five new countries simultaneously, you can't do this heavy measurement. And I, I think that typically is what is expected by people like funders, particularly the big bilateral agencies you mentioned, DFID, multilaterals. And so how do those two things, there must be a whole range of challenges within that, but how does that mesh, the sort of desire in the world for this intense evaluation and then actually the reality, which is it needs to be quick and flexible so that you can learn as you go? So the answer's in the, in the question in that if you can't do it, you have to do something else. Like you, you literally cannot do that kind of heavy data collection in those five different places in the sort of time you're working to for the sort of money that you would want to spend on it. You can't do an evaluation which costs 400000 for a company that might have the same in revenue. And as you go to five different countries, repeat that $400,000 evaluation in all those places. It's not a repeatable model. This idea has captured the attention that we need this kind of randomized, controlled truth. We need to know impact with certainty, etc. I've got a load of time for that whole movement, the random Easter movement of randomized control trials and really high standards of evidence because there was so little going on. There was just people's opinions for things. And so in some ways it was a circuit breaker to say, oh guys, we do need some evidence and we need high quality evidence to know if projects are working. But I think like with any pendulum, it can swing too far and it, and it got to the point where it was this sort of knee-jerk reaction. Whereas you know, if you don't have a control trial, you don't have any information that suggests anything about impact. And, and that actually undermines the perspective of the person who's experiencing it, be able to say, I, you know, hey guys, I, I actually thought that was great. Like I liked it. I thought it was good. It did these things for me. And I have a view here that's really important about whether something has changed in my life. And that can be got really quickly. It requires listening to someone. It requires calling them up. And their view about whether something has been valuable to them is really important, not just an academic's evaluation, which is also important. The other thing is that that whole system got optimized for the purpose of academic evaluations and journals. And of course, then you have to, in order to get a second publication in a journal, you have to do a new methodological in innovation as well. Like, you know, and you have to change something. And actually that limits the repeatability of the standardization of data collection over and over again in light, simple ways that are not sexy, but are very useful and make sure we're being consistently accountable. You know, like it's not hard for you to extend your financial accounting as you grow. It really shouldn't be much harder to extend your social performance measurement as you grow. And if you can't do that, it's not fit for purpose. We have to rebuild it, which is what we're trying to do is drive down the cost, increase the value, make it easy to scale this work as you as an organization scale. Next, I asked Tom about his opinion on the current gold standard of evidence gathering, random control trials. RCTs are a study design that randomly assigns participants into two or more groups. One group has an experiment conducted on it, and the other, the control group, has nothing done to it. The two groups are then compared to see if the intervention made a significant difference. I mean, I think it's... Uh 
horses for courses thing, right? You need an RCT. And if you're going to roll out some huge program at mass scale, then maybe, maybe you, maybe you need that and it's worth spending like a proportionate amount, but it's not a model for everyone. Like the, the thousands, hundreds of thousands of social change organizations trying to do this work can't be held to a quote unquote gold standard that is required for publication in academic journals. We'd never get anything done. We'd never get any information about what's working. So the essence, what they're doing is great. It's just, it isn't a model for scale. Just like we need models for scale in terms of distribution models and financing models and all the other things, the ingredients that get us to grow organizations. If we don't have a model for scale in terms of social performance, it will just be piecemeal, case study here, piecemeal there. And my personal view is that that will limit the opportunity for us all to create more impact, to spur this performance mentality so that we're optimizing for not just good impact, but great impact, which are the organizations that are most impactful judged against their peers. That doesn't come one randomized control trial at a time, or even like hundreds of them across hundreds of organizations. We need different tools. And we, and we have to accept, I think, some degree of uncertainty there and imprecision. That's how decisions are made all the time in the real world with, with imprecision and, and uncertainty. And that is certainly going to be the case in the social sector, because that's how the whole of the financial sector has been built with this idea of risk in there. So we can't we can't have a notion that we can de-risk our decisions about social impact. But I think that the sector needs to come away from this notion that that is a gold standard. It's a gold standard for certain contexts of deploying maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's definitely not a gold standard for the vast majority of organizations, actually. And if we continue to say it's gold, we'll consider everything else to be less good. And it's actually context. They're not less good. They're absolutely appropriate for the context of the organization that's using them. Lastly. Tom shares his advice to leaders in the social sector wishing to implement innovative ways of measuring impact. One of the things is not to be sort of frozen by the fear of, of this work of like, I, I haven't got this gold standard, therefore I can't talk to people about impact. There's a sort of steps we can all take for this. One is sort of systematic listening internally. And I think most organizations will know if they've got good listening systems through, I don't know, the frontline service officers. Are they, you know, are they getting the same story over and over again? Sometimes when I talk to a philanthropist and I say, and they say, well, what questions shall I ask the not-for-profit I'm supporting to demonstrate that they take this seriously? And I, and I say, look, well, I'll ask them, name me a time when you learned something from your beneficiaries or the people you serve where you didn't learn what was expected. You learned something unexpected about the impact you're aiming to create. And if they look at you blankly, then they're not really listening. They can't possibly have all the answers. You know, they, they must have like examples of that. So we can, if you're not experiencing that as a CEO, if you're not getting that information, ask yourself, why am I not getting that? Why are we not learning the unexpected about the things we're doing? When are we, when are we not learning about the challenges that we're having? When are we not learning about disgruntled people? If we're all just getting nice stories all the way through, we're not doing perhaps listening in the way we ought. And then like anything, I think there's a bunch of strategic decisions about how much to invest in this. When, you know, it's the same with anything. You know, if you think you're going to have to spend $500,000 on a randomized control trial, you're not going to do it. If you're balancing a whole load of things of how you invest in your finance, how you invest in your legal advice you have, this is just another advisory service. You may say, look, at this moment, we, we can afford to do some, you know, and, and then we'll spend some on this and we will either bring in internal talent or bring in external talent. But it doesn't have to cost, it costs the same sort of money that, those other services do and and you're making judgments as a business or not not for profit when you when you need those things the advice is don't get frozen by fear 
you don't need to hit the gold standard. There probably are a bunch of things you can do internally, even if you're on a shoestring, that might help you find out about when things aren't going quite as well. And then other than that, put it in your questions about what you're going to invest in. You know, if you as a company feel like you don't know enough about that, then invest in it. You can get someone to do this. You can get someone to do data collection if you don't have the systems internally and it doesn't cost the earth. Talking to Tom got me excited about the future of impact measurement and how it can enable organizations to scale more quickly. I love how 60 Decibels is putting people's lived experiences at the heart of decision making. If you're a leader in the social sector, I hope this episode got you thinking about how you can do the same in your organization. If you've enjoyed this episode of Mission to Scale, check out Upstarts, a new podcast series by The Conduit, a home for people passionate about positive impact. Upstarts focuses on the stories of a diverse range of impact entrepreneurs spanning industries, interests, and influence. The series gets to the heart of the journey of an impact entrepreneur, looking into how they built their companies, what problems they're trying to fix, their impact so far, and their hopes for the future. What can we learn, and then action, from their experience? Thank you to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. If you like to stay connected with the latest news in global philanthropy, Mission to Scale listeners can get 50% off your first subscription by using the code SPRINGIMPACT at checkout. Visit alliancemagazine.org to find out more. That's it for today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or colleague. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. <laughs>